Welcome to Bloombox Growing Deeper. I'm Sarah. I'm Hannah. And we're on a mission to help you become the gardener you want to be. All right. Welcome, everybody. Welcome back to Bloombox Growing Deeper. Uh, I'm here with Sarah again today. It's just the two of us. And we are going to talk gardening lingo. We're going to try to uh, catch us all up on some of the weird words I like to use that make Hannah stare at me blankly and think I'm crazy. Not crazy. Mostly, I think, oh, this is probably something I should know, and I don't know it. So I know there's people out there who have been listening to the podcast going, oh, my goodness, I better start Googling, right? Yeah. It's like any any hobby or any skill in life. It's kind of gardening has its own language. And uh, one thing we want to make sure we're doing is to be speaking the same language. Exactly. And that's, yeah, that's one of my favorite things. That's how you know you're in, is when you start to recognize all the language and acronyms and things like that. Yeah. So let's start with one that I think we've tried to make sure we're taking our time to explain um, as it comes up. And that's scientific names. Yeah, scientific versus common names. This one's fun, mostly because people get really impressed when you can just whip out a Latin name. Yeah, and it sounds cool when yeah. you can. I mean, it feels like you can speak Latin. Yeah, it's not. It's it's botanical Latin. Right. It's not exactly the same as the spoken language, but um, every plant has a scientific name, and every plant has one scientific name. It's like its real name, and they do occasionally. Botanists will change those as we get better equipment to study, you know, the actual relationships of plants, Um, because a lot of these plants were named in like the 1700s. Right. I think the most recent and confusing one for us has been the aster. That one's frustrating (laughs) to me. And that's mostly because aster changed from being in the genus aster to being in the genus symbiotrichum, Mm -hmm. which is terribly hard to spell (laughs) (laughs) yeah i think i was looking through spring affair news um recently and trying to find the asters and i was like where did we put them this time (laughs) because sometimes we do leave them under aster just for um ease Mm -hmm. so the scientific name has two parts the genus and the species the genus comes first And you can kind of think of that as the last name, even though it comes first. It's like our family name where there's lots of plants in a genus that may not look exactly the same. So I'm thinking of like the sedge genus is Carex. And there's some really short ones. There's some really tall ones. There's some sun ones, some shade ones. But they're all in this family Carex. And then you have the second name is the species name. And that's like your first name. That's specific to you. So we have Carex uh, grayi, which is gray sedge. And we have Carex pennsylvanica, which is Pennsylvania sedge. So it's kind of like having this this really broad family name and then this really specific to you name. It's like how when you go home to your small town and everyone knows because of your last name who you're related to. Exactly. It's the same with plants. We can go, oh, you're one of those sedges. (laughs) Stay away. No, I love sedges. We love sedges. They're one of our favorite plants. (laughs) And then the common name is like your nickname. So it's usually descriptive, but it's descriptive by 
one individual. So we've got things like sneezeweed, which is Hellenium autumnale, and we sell that as Helen's flower. Um, yes, because who wants sneezeweed? Nobody wants sneezeweed. So it's kind of a misleading common name. Common names are great because they're easy to remember. They're usually in English, and they're descriptive in some way, like purple coneflower is purple, and yellow coneflower is yellow. But there's also a yellow coneflower that is in the Echinacea genus, and there's a yellow coneflower that is in the Retibita genus. And we use different common names for that, but I've heard the yeah. common name yellow coneflower be used to describe plants in both those genuses. And so even if that's the name we use to talk about them in everyday conversation, we always want to label things with scientific names. Yes, it's very helpful. Like if a customer comes up to us at a sale mm -hmm. and we want to help them, if we can classify in some scientific names, that helps us out to, to get them to the right direction. Yes. And then, of course, we're going to use common names, but it's, uh, it's good to know sometimes. But also, if you don't know scientific names, it's okay. Do not worry. And if you read it, especially in Spring Fair News or something, and you go, I have no idea how you would say that. Guess what? Neither do we. We say it with confidence. <laughs> We're likely wrong. <laughs> There's always the debate, liatris, liatris. Right. Uh, uh, nobody knows. Somebody does. But somebody not us. knows. But it isn't us. <laughs> and the other thing that comes into play is that scientific names are universal. So if you go to another country where this plant also grows, or you're discussing something with someone from a different part of the world, we want to talk in scientific names because um, common names can be very regional, both in just the part of the plant that the, the people in this region thought was important or the way they used it. And scientific names are universal throughout the world. They're usually, I believe, I may get this wrong, so I'll double check it, but they come through the International Society of Horticulture. That, it gives us a way to talk to people. So if you have problems, take it up with them, not us. Yep, not not <laughs> our fault. We're just the labelers. That's right. All right, up next, woody versus herbaceous. Okay. Which, once again, herbaceous kind of sounds like a big word, but it's pretty simple, really, the difference. Yeah, I mean, if you think about herbaceous, the word, it starts with the word herb. So we think of things that are leafy and green and soft, and then, and things that are woody is kind of self-explanatory. That's our trees and our shrubs that are, have form bark on the outside of their stems. Mm -hmm. So the real difference when it comes to growing these plants is that woody plants that form a bark and a, a sturdy solid stem, that stem persists through the winter and re-sprouts growth in the spring. So you think of trees, they lose their leaves, but the trunk stays. Right. They don't die back to they the ground. They don't die back to the ground. Herbaceous plants die back to the ground. So our geraniums, the top dies and we rake it away and it sprouts completely new from the crown of the plant, which is the where the top, our leaves and stems, join with the roots. That's kind of the transition from roots to top. And it's the spot where if that gets damaged, that's where you run into problems. Yeah, You're probably not going to get the plant that you expect. Right. That's where all the growth in the plant initiates, where all the growth comes from. So we protect the crown of the plant at all costs. Save the crown. <laughs> <laughs> that's why you hear us talking about being careful with mulch around the crowns of plants. Yes. So Woody, here's one of the tough parts I think some people can run into because when we 
uh, look at the first few growing years of a tree, right? Like it's woody, but it's not bark how you right. would expect it's still to bendy. see it. It's bendy. Sometimes it's still green. So it, especially when things are young, it can get a little, a little fluid, let's say. But that yeah. still means that that tree or whatever it is is still a woody plant. Right. And then there's some nuances. We have things that are only semi-woody. Like uh, we were talking in our question and answer episode about lead plant. It technically can re-sprout from some of those stems, but usually the tips die off. And if you cut it off, if you cut off all of those stems, it will regrow from the crown with no problem, just like an herbaceous plant. So we have things that kind of float in between. But that um, lead plant, even though it's, it's sort of persistent, it doesn't form a bark like a tree. Right. And I think that's why you can prune it so yeah. much at once, right? Exactly. Yeah. Since we're thinking about spring affair coming up and sorting plants into categories, let's go into annual plants versus biennial plants versus perennial plants. This is the bane of my existence sometimes. <laughs> People are like, where is this? I think we have hydrangea corsifolia in like three different spots. Oh, lovely. <laughs> It's, it sounds tricky, but it, it's really a pretty simple idea. It's just a little bit overwhelming to think about. So a perennial plant, we're all pretty familiar with those, is a plant that lives for many years. And it's kind of seems odd to put trees in that category, but trees are a prime example of a perennial plant. They live for many, many, many years. In the same spot. Exactly. The same specific plant mm -hmm. continues to live. And then in our gardens, we have things like geraniums and hostas and daylilies. These are perennials that continue to live the same original plant year after year. Mm -hmm. And then we have, we'll skip to the other end of the spectrum, and that's annuals. These are plants that complete their full life cycle and die in one year. And they would do that regardless of where in the world they lived. It's not a cold thing. It's that's their life that's cycle. The physiology that's the, of the plant. Exactly. They are designed to grow up, produce flowers, produce seeds, and die all in one spring to fall cycle. And that's why they're usually very pretty. Yeah. Like they're very flowerful plants because they have to do the whole life cycle very quickly. And they do it um, big. Mm -hmm. uh, they, they're full of flowers. So they want to produce as many seeds as possible. They don't have to worry about roots. As no, much. they don't. They typically have some shallower roots, which does often make them less tolerant to things like drought and cold. Right. And we can keep those growing in our gardens when we allow them to seed themselves in, when they, we allow them to produce their seeds and we let the seeds come up without mm -hmm. pulling them. So we can keep annuals growing in our gardens. I think my dill is a prime yeah. example of that because it comes back every year in my herb garden just because I let it go to seed after a certain amount of time and then it pops right back up the next year exactly for me lettuce ended up mm. being mm -hmm. that not intentionally i accidentally let some lettuce bolt and now we have lettuce coming up all over yeah uh, which is fine i mean it's just lettuce i have that problem too uh, yeah there's lettuce everywhere now <laughs> <laughs> my my pet bunny is a fan oh i'm sure so we pick that for her and then in the middle, we have things like biennials, and there's there's even a few more categories, but we're going to stick with three. So biennials are plants that complete their life cycle in two years. A lot of you farmers and ranchers are going to be familiar with this because biennial weeds are really hard to control. So these are plants that grow 
up in one year with their leaves and they live like that and they they grow some deeper roots and then they go dormant and then in the next spring they grow up and they produce a flower and produce seed and then they may live a little bit that a third year but usually they're done Usually two years is it. They produce their seed and they're done. And a good example of this is pansies. If you've ever seeded pansies, you sow pansy seed in the summer. You let it grow up, grow leaves, go dormant for the winter. And then the next spring, you get the pretty pansy flowers. Right. Hollyhocks. Hollyhocks. Yeah. Those Mm -hmm. are a good example. Yeah. Mm -hmm. They do a good job of reseeding themselves. They do a great job. I think some people might confuse them for perennials yes they do keep because they last right forever but it's not the original plant it's right. a new baby plant and i think biennials are a little easier to keep in the garden because you just have a little bit more time i mean and with the exception of dill which i don't know <laughs> anybody who has trouble keeping their dill around right <laughs> <laughs> annuals can be a little harder because you only have one chance to get seed off that plant right and that's why annuals i like to plant in my pots right on my porch and you replant <laughs> just, new ones every year yeah just buy yeah. the eight pack or whatever pop them in (laughs) so one of the times that this whole conversation gets confusing is then when we go to the garden center and we see their perennial section and their annual section and um it's kind of misnamed because a lot of those things they're selling as annuals live for one year in nebraska because we get really cold but their actual perennial plants they're just from a warmer climate so things like finca Mm. and um a christmas example is your um poinsettia poinsettias Mm -hmm. that here they live for a very short amount of time unless you're magic because i've seen some people that's their poinsettia like there's some still alive over in forestry hall oh my goodness i had no idea you know i saw one somewhere the other day and like a store on their customer service counter and i was like how are you doing this right uh, but they are in if you were to go to mexico poinsettias are actually a, a shrub mm-hmm. kind of a viney shrub so it's kind of a misnomer and the correct term for that would be temperennials a perennial that is not hardy here it prefers a more temperate climate than we have right and sometimes at the statewide arboretum we refer to them as non-hardy yeah just to it's it's a little easier to understand than right. temperennial. So when we say non-hardy temperennial, that's pretty much the same thing to us. Yeah. It's a plant that may or may not be perennial, but is just not going to survive a Nebraska winter. Right. So that hardy brings us to hardiness zones. Yeah. Because that's really what we're referencing is these are non-hardy in our zone. So what's our zone again? We, and it's changing, right? A well, little bit. A little bit. So we're in Lincoln, mm-hmm. Nebraska, and that is zone 5B. No, we're 5A now. We used to be 5B. That's where it changed. We're a 5. We're a 5. <laughs> um, middle of the road. <laughs> pretty much. Right down the middle. So we're, um, we are colder than a zone 10. So the higher the number, the warmer the zone. Mm-hmm. In Nebraska, out west, we also have zones four. Right. Um, and then when you move into like Wyoming and South Dakota, you can get into zone three. So the lower the number, the colder it is. And there's a little bit more to it, but essentially it's it's average low temperatures in the winter. Right. And these are set by the USDA. Correct. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So within, you know, zone five, there's zone 5A and zone 5B. So we're in... 
we're edging into the warmer side of that five, where we used to be the cooler side of the five. And then through, you know, central to western Nebraska, you move through through 4A into 4B. Yes. So those are the, the zones you should be looking for when you are thinking about buying a new plant. Um, if if you're not sure if it's going to grow, most plants, you can either look it up or lots have it on their tags that are mm-hmm. there with the plant, what the hardiness zone is. Yeah. Um, and you might, you might be able to get one that um, is on the edge of your zone, depending on if you mulch it up a little bit or water it a little bit more. Um, but you're definitely not going to be able to grow a zone 10 plant in Nebraska. Right. It, there is some, I mean, it's not a perfect system. Right. It's in a just an attempt to help us all you know know and learn if this plant's going to grow here so you know if you're in central nebraska and on the map you're technically 4a and you find this really cool plant that's listed as five try it Mm -hmm. um you know maybe don't buy the biggest pot and spend a ton of money on but try it uh you never know and and in some of our urban settings we can be a little warmer than if you're out you know in a rural area with less protection because our towns do stay just a little bit warmer Right. Or maybe you have that tucked area of your yard that's protected by your garage and your house and like, oh, maybe it won't get so much wind. It'll be a little warmer. You could give it a go. Yeah. So then that leads us to hardening off. Oh, yeah. This is a big topic. This is a big topic for a lot of different types of plants, I feel like. So let's, why don't you start and then I'll I'll chime in. This one always surprises me because I'm kind of a plant bully. I'm just like, you're going (laughs) to get this much care from me and if you don't live I don't know if I have time for you and then on the flip side of that there's some people who are very kind to their plants and slowly harden them off and get them ready to be out in the landscape so hardening off is just the term we use for when we're taking something from growing inside and we're getting it ready to grow outside and that could mean something you brought in for the winter to keep it in your house as a house plant, and now it's going to go out and be your porch plant. Or it could be a plant that you just bought and it's been growing in a greenhouse and you need to get it ready to plant in your yard. And so we're preparing these plants. They've been protected from really low temperatures. Um, if they've been growing in a greenhouse, they've probably handled some pretty high temperatures, but they've still been protected from really really direct sun and they've probably never been allowed to dry out right so we're just getting them ready to be a little less pampered and in nebraska they've been protected from those gale force winds yes (laughs) (laughs) which is kind of a you know people think about cold mostly but the wind is something a plant needs to prepare for Um, yes especially trees i've found it's important for them to get a little bit of babying time where they get a little bit of that wind, and then you push them back up. (laughs) Yeah, because just like any muscle, humans have to prepare. You know, a tree kind of needs to be blown back and forth in the wind so that it can get strong enough to protect itself. Mm -hmm. Exactly. So this is where you might hear that, you know, we always get those questions like, oh, I had this inside all winter, and then I put it outside in its pot, and it immediately just looked terrible yeah this is that problem if you don't do a little bit of a transition time for that plant because the other thing that always surprised me i didn't learn this until i started helping in the greenhouse here is also how much the wind can change the moisture in a pot yeah which i didn't know about and so that's the 
another thing to keep in mind. That's never not going to get fixed through hardening off. But uh, it is something to keep in mind when you're trying to get a plant ready to go outside. Is if you're putting it outside in a pot, you're going to have to water probably a little bit more. Because the water is just it's going to go through it more. Yeah, that's one of the reasons why um, it always makes me nervous when people come and buy plants and then they tell me they're not going to plant for like two weeks. And it's like, okay, so here's the deal. <laughs> These plants have been in a big group in the greenhouse all together getting watered at least once a day. And if you take them to your yard and separate them with more space in between them and that wind is blowing through, uh, the wind just sucks moisture right out of pots. You need to be ready to water frequently or get them in a protected area Mm -hmm. so i like people to buy their plants when they're ready to plant but that's not always possible so um we just need to be ready to take care of them so we're not going to go too much into the details of hardening off that's just what people are talking about you can look up plenty of things about how to do it when to do it what to do it to um most of our plants we kind of pre-harden off for you so yeah and if you're a succulent or houseplant person there's all kinds of information out there about hardening those off yeah to get ready to replant in other places so do some googling you'll find the good information you need Yes, but hopefully we either told you what everybody's talking about or we gave you the word to start Right, exactly. uh, if you wanted to look it up. All right, so tell me, Hannah, you're going to have to help me here. Uh-oh. <laughs> what parts of the plant have I referenced that made no sense to you? Okay, well, we already talked about crown, mm-hmm. so that's, that's an important one. I think that's the main thing I took from my Hort 101 course yeah. was just like protect the crown at all costs (laughs) you are the plant secret service (laughs) that's right and actually i accidentally mowed over my hellebore last year my um linton rose and i just thought i hope my mower was high enough that i didn't get the crown and it'll pop right back up next year guess what it did did. oh yay so it's back and it looks fine um it probably didn't enjoy that but but it survived. It survived. Good. And we're going to make it. Okay. Good news. So the crown. Um, the other parts are pretty standard. I mean, you got the stem, you got the leaf, you got the flower, you got all that. What I think can be confusing to some people is that when they think flower. Oh, yeah. They think big, showy, you can see it, and there's bees all over it, right? Yeah. Um, it smells good. It smells good. But... Everything pretty much flowers. Yeah. Uh, not everything, but for the purpose of this conversation, right. everything flowers. Right. And so even though you don't see that little flower on your grass or your sedge or something, it's still there. So can you tell us a little bit about flowers that aren't okay. showy? Yeah. So <laughs> let's like just start at the basics. Yes. The f- purpose of a flower to a plant is to reproduce. So this is where it produces pollen. And um, then, you know, with our plants that need cross-pollination, that pollen has to move from one plant to the other. And we won't go into that talk. You can have that talk with your mom. (laughs) But the um, purpose of a flower to a plant is to, you know, share pollen and produce seed. And they design their flowers based on who or what is helping them move that pollen. So with... 
anything that's pollinated by an insect, it's going to have big showy flowers. Mm -hmm. And they're probably going to smell good. Of course. Of course. Or smell bad. Or smell bad. I mean, there's, you know, there's the corpse plant that is pollinated by flies. Um, I don't plant that in my backyard. (laughs) I mean, that's from the rainforest. But (laughs) I'm glad we don't have that I think you can go visit one at Loritz and Gardens. I think you can. And I think they... uh, it's a pretty big deal when it flowers. Yes, they call him Mr. Stinko, oh. and it's all over their social media when it flowers. Okay. So you keep an eye on that. You can go smell the corpse. I think I'll keep an eye on that <laughs> to not be the day I visit. Okay. <laughs> um, and then there's wind pollinated plants, and so their flowers are designed to have the pollen very open for the wind to pick up and carry. And so our grasses, most of them are wind pollinated, so there's not big pretty petals. They just have, you know, if you. I'm going to put a picture in the show notes because I have a really cool picture of a close-up of big blue stem flowers. And all it looks like is these little dangling things. And those little dangling things are the pollen. They're just dangling out in the wind so that when the wind comes through, it picks up that pollen real easy. And there's no showy flowers because they're not trying to attract an insect. And um, there's really not much to them. Right. And I think part of that so when you think about how big bluestem used to grow in a prairie, right? All those plants grew really close together. So they didn't need something like a bee to take it from here to a block away and pollinate it. Right. They could just blow a little bit and yeah. all of a sudden they touch the next plant maybe <laughs> even. Or even and, just a little breeze sprinkling right. it through. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's all they really needed. Or a rabbit just ran through and shook it a little bit. Yeah. Like, That's all. So um, it may sound unimportant, but if you are trying to get, um, you know, a grass to populate itself in your garden or another plant, it is important to know what the flower is in that they all have one. And even though like grasses, most of them are insect pollinated. We do have some bees that still use big blue stem for their pollen. They're not pollinating it. But they they do use some of the pollen um, to raise their larvae. So that's kind of cool. Big blue stem's the larval host for something that I'll have to look up. Oh, okay. Um, it's a skipper. It's one of the skipper species. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Um, and then we have things like um, liatris, which is that big spike of purple flower. One of my absolute yeah. favorites. And it can be tempting to call that whole big spike the flower, mm-hmm. but it's actually each individual piece of the spike is the flower. Right. And back to our poinsettia. Yeah. Right? Those red leaves are leaves. Yeah, and they then are. And the flower is the little green thing in the middle. That's sort of ugly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's there's all different types of ways to attract or get get pollination to happen the way you need it to happen if you're a plant. If anybody really wants to learn about this, my computer screen is being held up by a book called The Principles of Horticultural Physiology, and it can tell you all about the different types of flowers. Put it on the to-read list. <laughs> um, it is actually a great reference, even though it's holding up my computer screen. I have opened it several times this year already. So that, I think, covers... That in my mind, that's the parts of the plants that were important. I think, yeah. Okay, I asked you for a reason because you know sometimes these words become really common to me. Yeah, I think sometime we'll go into trees. Yes, but we're not going to do that. There's today. a lot more to talk about with parts of a tree. Right. Mm-hmm. So put that on your oh man, it's coming up. Okay. <laughs> so um, to kind of go back to this types of plants. 
conversation, let's bring up the question of what is native. Oh, man. We're not going to go into too much um, Can right you now. Can sense my just... Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, it's a big topic. There's a lot of nuance to it. So we're going to save a whole episode to talk mm-hmm. about the nuances of if a plant is native. The only thing I want to talk about right now is what that word means. And that is that when surveys of plants in virgin prairie or woodlands were done they were able to find this plant here and i just want to clarify this has nothing whatsoever to do with political boundaries because plants don't care so usually we're talking about ecological areas we can talk about the missouri river valley or the platte river valley or the sand hills yeah or the salt plat or salt flats salt flats yeah and um Just something to keep in mind when you're shopping native plants is to know how you want native to be defined. And that may be your region, that may be regionally, that may be you really want to know that it was discovered in your county. Um, And to be aware that you may have to look some of that up for yourself because a lot of nurseries label their plants native nationally. Mm-hmm. When, you know, you're at the garden center, it's labeled native. They may mean Nebraska. They may just mean the continental U.S. Right. And that's, you're especially going to find that at the bigger national yeah. stores. If you go to a very locally owned landscape uh, company, they might be able to tell you a little bit more of what's native in the area. Yeah. I think the sm- typically, I mean, I'm speaking broadly, but the smaller the nursery, the more likely they're able to tell you what's native in exactly your state or your region um the bigger stores i mean they're not printing nebraska labels and iowa labels they're printing one set of labels so um, you're able to at least find out it's native to the u.s and then i'll link up in the show notes the um i use the usda's plant information database when i look things up and you can you can get down to the county level on that's where and it's it's a little bit too specific for my taste because it Remember, it's limited by the surveys that were done. But you can kind of look at the trend. If it's in every county but yours, let's just assume a survey wasn't done at mm-hmm. the right time to catch this plant. Um, but it's a it's a great, easy place to search. You can search by scientific or common name. Yes. And, of course, this is where we can help you out in Nebraska as well. Because we, the Statewide Arboretum, has quite a few sources, resources on our website of you're loosely western eastern nebraska what is our definition of native for that area yeah and we don't sell only um very specific political boundary natives we do sell great plains natives Mm -hmm. um but we know our plants well and we're able to help you if you're shopping at one of our sales we can help you uh see what's native in your particular area Mm mm-hmm Let's move into some of the more, like, actionable definitions uh, when we're choosing plants and then how we're caring for them. This I have to look up every spring because I forget. And that is sun, part sun, part shade, full shade, water. (laughs) so many things so when i'm trying to decide what to plant especially in a new bed once i have a bed established i can be like oh this is similar to this so it'll probably grow well Uh, but when i'm establishing a new garden which i'm doing this year in a couple of spots and i'm like you know i don't 
does that get six hours of sun? Is it afternoon sun? I don't remember what it is. So why don't you give us an overview? Okay, I think sun part sunshade is one of the most deceptively complicated topics. It sounds so simple. Is it sunny or is it not? <laughs> <laughs> it should be easy, right? Um, but it's it's not. We switched a few years ago to doing our plant um, cards in the greenhouse on a sliding scale instead yes. of just saying sun part sun. We've started showing a scale that this plant can take up to eight hours of sun or it can take down to two or it can only take down to four or it's really pretty specific to six to eight it wants it full and blazing sun uh, because it just is a kind of a sliding scale and then um it's a spectrum it's a spectrum yeah and then water comes into play because also a spectrum also a spectrum <laughs> you something that can take you know wet full sun might be able to go down to part some, but it needs it drier in that area. So we've switched to doing these on sliding scales because hard numbers um, don't always work perfectly. But generally speaking, we define anything with at least six hours of sun to be full and anything with at least four hours of sun to be part. So if it gets less than four hours of sun, it's pretty solidly in the shade and shade's the most dependably stable. Sun to part sun is kind of where things start to vary. Right. Especially because I have found a little bit of a difference. Like, does it get morning sun or afternoon sun? Yeah. Uh, it may seem like the same sun, but it is not. Oh, man. <laughs> Especially not, you know, if you don't have a ton of shelter from the wind. That mm -hmm. western setting sun is harsh. And right. if you throw some wind in there. Yeah. Just think about when is it the hottest part of the day. It's yeah. it's the afternoon mm -hmm. It's an afternoon, so when you have sun beating down at the hottest part of the day with a lot of wind, that's a harsh condition to, to try to grow a plant. But when you're getting morning sun where it's a little bit cooler and a little bit of wind protection, so like I said, it's a spectrum. It varies a little bit. And sometimes you start out and you plant all full sun plants, and then you're like, oh, these are not looking great, and you introduce a couple of part sun and then maybe it does a little better yeah so you just have to keep an eye on the spot where you're planning to put them for i'd say at least a week check on it at different times mm -hmm. throughout the day and just say is it sunny or not <laughs> that'll help you out. this is actually kind of a hard thing to keep track of especially for everyone who works during the day right <laughs> you've really got to like remember to catch it on a saturday and just check it you know you don't have to sit there and watch the no. spot just like give it a check at eight o'clock in the morning give it a check at lunchtime and give it a check right before supper does it have sun at these times and uh just you know the other thing is don't check your sun in the winter. That's when it's <laughs> tempting because you've got nothing else to do in the garden. But remember that the sun moves kind of north to south at that angle from winter to summer. And so you can get really different, um, you know, angles of light. Right. And, you know, our days are shorter. Think back to that fourth grade class. The earth is on a tilt. It has an axis. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to keep that in mind. Yeah. And kind of the same thing goes for the water. We've, we we kind of define our, our range as dry to average to moist. Or if you really can't handle that word, we can do wet. Um, <laughs> but in horticulture, you kind of got to get over that. Yeah. Um, moisture is important to plants. It's very important. And I think one of the reasons why we talk about moisture instead of like 
precipitation is because there's a lot of ways for plants to get it. Right. Because it maybe didn't rain, but there's moisture in the ground, in the soil. And so there's a lot of nuance. Yeah. Or maybe it didn't rain, but you washed your car in the driveway. Mm -hmm. Or... um, Maybe it didn't rain, but it snowed and melted right away. So moisture can come from a lot of places. And yeah, that's exactly right. That's why we don't define it only as rain or only as watering. Mm -hmm. So a loose definition of this for me is that a dry area is a place that dries out completely between moisture events. So um, whether you irrigate your lawn or it's raining, that's a moisture event. And if the soil in this garden dries out completely to where you can pick it up and it's pretty crumbly and dry, in between those, that's a dry area. If it starts to dry up, but it's still, you know, you can put your hand in and feel some moisture in the soil in between moisture events, then that's an average soil. And honestly, in our urban settings where people are watering their lawns, many of our gardens are average. And then the moist or wet areas, this is where it doesn't get the chance to dry out. So it might not be soggy and boggy and mud puddly, but maybe this is where there's a little more clay content to the soil, or there's a little bit of a hard pan that keeps the soil from, or it keeps the water from draining all the way in. Mm -hmm. And um, you can feel just a little bit more than damp when you feel that soil in between waterings. This isn't how much water it gets when it's getting right. watered or when it's getting rain. It's what happens in between those events. Mm-hmm. So another thing to keep keep in mind as you're getting ready to plant a new yeah, bed. A new bed. Okay, let's go there. Okay, new beds yeah. and gardens versus landscapes versus yards. This one I think is fun because when I hear people, um, like when I listen to podcasts of people in Europe, Yes. Oh, yes. They refer to their what we probably would say our yard, like our backyard or front yard. They just refer to it as their garden. I love this. So in my brain, I think that all these people have just these beautiful vegetable and perennial gardens everywhere. No grass. Uh, lawn and I know that's not the case (laughs) but I am enjoying picturing that I'm picturing it it looks kind of like the shire like I don't know that's exactly what I picture too but in our yard our yard is the land around our house that we own and within our yard we probably have some turf grass and then we probably have some areas with plant and any area of plants that's a bed right I did confuse someone yesterday. They asked me what I did over the weekend. And I said, oh, I worked in my gardens. And they said, how many gardens do you have? Because in my head, I have my Bloombox garden. Oh, yeah. I have my this garden, my vegetable garden, my rock garden. So, like, I worked in my gardens. Yeah. But because to me, those are all very separate, distinct areas. Yeah. (laughs) So, um I think this one could get a little... Now you've got me wanting to go tell somebody that over the weekend I built a new bed. Yes. And (laughs) and see if I can get somebody to think I, like, built a sleeping bed. Right, right. (laughs) Um, So an area with plants, trees, flowers, whatever, not turf, is a bed. But is it a garden bed or a landscape bed? That's up to you. Oh, man, that's... I I think. I think that's up to everybody. I honestly... I think I go back and forth myself. Some people say it's a landscape bed if it's perennials, trees, shrubs, and it's a garden if it's fruits and vegetables. Yeah, and I do think 
if you're talking to a non-gardener, that's a good way to delineate yeah. for them. I think they can understand that. But gardeners, all of you, will just say, this is my garden. Yeah. And I know for me, I tend to say it's a garden bed if it's at someone's home and it's a landscape bed if it's public mm. or managed in some way by you know, caretakers, right. but everything in my yard, I just call it my garden beds. And some of them have food in them and some of them just have plants. Yes. It's kind of up to you. It does make me feel fancy to be like, today I worked in my rock garden. Yes. And tomorrow I will be working in my bloom box garden. Like it makes me sound like I got a lot of garden. <laughs> it does. I also love when people, you know, I think you mostly hear this in Europe too, when people's job is a gardener Yeah, and it really... I mean, they're a landscaper, but it just sounds to me like um, it makes me think of the secret garden. Yeah. With the gardener who is just always out there working and just kind of helped her learn about the plants. That's what I think of. And I yes. want that job. Oh, me too. Okay. So we have already talked about a lot of these things. Um, what else? Well, wanna... I think. One way to kind of end here okay. is plants that move. Ooh, yes. And I have a new one terminology Ooh, for this that okay. I don't, uh, is not on our show notes. Exciting. Here. Um, because Christina stopped by my office yesterday, and you all will meet Christina. And she mentioned that some of her coral bells were heaving. Ooh. And I was like, this is a new word. She explained <laughs> it to me. And I was like, that is happening to mine, too. Because I walked by some new coral bells I planted last year and noticed that they just were not in the ground anymore. They were just up, popped. Yeah. <laughs> and I was like, what happened here? <laughs> Apparently, that's heaving. And it's common for coral bells. Okay. Tell us more about it. So, really, it is just like when it gets so dry, which we've had a very dry winter here in southeast Nebraska, that the ground just gets so dry and cracks, and then the whole plant really does just, like, come out of the ground. Just like when your driveway heaves from mm -hmm. the freeze-thaw motion. Right. Yeah. Interesting. And, and so did my yeah. coral bells. I, I don't know if they'll come back. Well, I think if I you... I, did you I, plant I, them back Replanted. Down? Okay. Well, I think they have hope that... <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's kind of funny to think about plants moving but we we do talk about that quite a bit when we're designing gardens that there's plants that are very stable and structural and then there's plants that move around and uh, if you're a very formal gardener that makes you really nervous but if you're a very informal gardener which a lot of us are um, that can be really cool mm -hmm. it can be fun to see you know where things plant themselves and um, it's also a great way to get longevity out of some of those biennials and annuals right so like one way that plants move around is to seed themselves mm -hmm. so you know you have a, a mother plant that spreads seed out and if you are the type of gardener to allow that seed to come up and grow then you can get you know penstemons do it a lot mm -hmm. you can get you know penstemon throughout the garden and then since they're a short-lived perennial you will eventually lose that mother plant but you'll keep having penstemons in your garden and i think the one that lots of people plant and then realize it's going to be the bane of their existence is bee balm right <laughs> bee balm is very um excellent at moving around yes. in the garden and we kind of call these things that come up on their own so we call them volunteer plants and uh i like that word 
because it leaves room for if you're the kind of person who doesn't want volunteers or if you're, you know, the kind of gardener who wants as many volunteer plants as they can get. You know, there's no, you know, good or bad connotation to that word. Um, You can kind of choose. And sometimes you want volunteers of this plant, but you don't want volunteers of that plant. Right. And another way plants can move through the garden is they can run. Yes, I experienced this this weekend when I was moving my goldenrod. Yeah. Because it kind of like shot out some little babies. Runners. Yes. Yeah. Some runners. So when plants run, it means they've got a horizontal root going through the ground to a spot where it pops up a new top mm-hmm. part. And to, I was so excited. Yeah. I it's, <laughs> I think, you know, there's, there's also positives and negatives to this. If it's a hard plant to manage, runners are... Harder than seed to control. So, like, for me, it's this very poor choice of daylilies that was planted (laughs) in my yard. And, you know, they're not staying in the landscape, but they've sent out runners. And now we have daylilies coming up in our grass. Right. And it's hard to get rid of them. Um, But for plants like, you know, goldenrod, I would love that because it would, you know, create more goldenrods in my garden. Yeah, fill in a little bit. And then those you can eventually split. Yes, you can eventually separate transplant if you wanted to. Yeah. And running plants can be really great weed control Mm -hmm. because they're not just on the top of the ground there. Roots are also taking up soil space, which, you know, just helps protect your garden from weeds. So Mm -hmm. like uh, flocks, everybody likes that ground cover flocks. That's a great example of something that we like to have run because it runs across the ground, ruts in, and it's really hard for weeds to come up through it. I do love a good phlox. I do too. It's great at that. It's greening up around my mailbox and it's making me so happy. Mm, Yay. All right. Well, I think we covered a lot of lingo today. We covered a lot. Maybe Um, too much, but I'm sure we'll have a lingo part two at some point. Yes. Well, we're going to cover some of these terms in greater detail eventually. Mm Mm-hmm. All right. Well, if you have any questions about other lingo, things we didn't talk about today, or as you continue to listen, because we know you're all dedicated listeners, every time the episode comes out, you wake up and you go, oh, there it is. And then you listen right away while you brush your teeth and you hear something, send it in to us. Yes. So that that way we get it on the next time we talk about lingo and we can clarify what we're talking about. So don't forget to send in questions, comments. And I'm planning with this episode, I'm going to make a Facebook and Instagram post and invite people to share other words so we can have a conversation going and and see what other things are out there. Because one of the tough things in our positions is you start to create blind spots Mm -hmm. and there starts to be words that become a little too familiar to us um, and we don't always recognize that they're um, not familiar to other people especially acronyms yes so if you hear us say an acronym and you're like i don't know what that means please send it to us Stop it's us. not a stupid question no. trust me okay so hannah what plant are you thinking about this week okay so actually what i was gonna say i was thinking about is that goldenrod oh yeah because i transplanted it over the weekend my and um so this would be early April when okay. we're when I transplanted it. And I just I had this area where I had planted it a couple of years ago and we decided that needs to become the storage area for our garbage cans outside. Uh. <laughs> and I was like, well, 
just planted this and it's one of my favorites it's fireworks goldenrod yeah that is a good one yeah so it kind of bursts a little bit that's how i like to describe it okay so i really didn't want to lose it so i transplanted it to another garden that i started last year that a couple of things i can tell already didn't make it through the winter so needed to do some fill in and this goldenrod has also already gotten like all those runners and things so it's gonna be a good fill in at the back of the garden and then in the late summer fall when it explodes it fireworks it's just gonna flow into all of my other beautiful plants that That i have there so gorgeous yes i'm excited because i think right around it i have some lady in black aster oh that's another good one oh it's just gonna spill right onto it i'm so excited i do like that about fireworks um, if you plant it alone, it can look kind of odd because it doesn't have a lot of leaves at its base. Right. It's very like vase shaped and the bottom's kind of almost icky looking. <laughs> but if you plant a lot of other things around it, like some asters or some grasses, then it just like pops over the top and spills down like yes. a, I think of like a tall centerpiece at a wedding. Yes. Or like a water fountain. Yeah. Mm-hmm. What are you thinking about, Sarah? Okay. I'm thinking about Baptisia. Oh, yeah. And this is one of those fun plants that that is its genus. And a lot of times it just gets called by its scientific name, but it does have a common name and it's a uh, false indigo. Right. And I like the dwarf one. Mm-hmm. I just planted some. And, oh, it's just one of my favorite plants ever. It's like almost a little bush, but it's a perennial. And it's just, I don't know, I love the leaves. They're these smooth, kind of like round leaves. Almost waxy. Yeah, they're almost a little waxy. They're very thick leaves. Mm-hmm. And then, oh my goodness, the flowers are just this like spike of the Gorgeous. bluest blue. in the, They're one of the first blooming things in the spring. And uh, obviously, I'm not going to get the blooms from it this year, but next year, I'm looking forward to mm-hmm. this. And I've been waiting to plant this plant. This is going where I dug up all my daylilies. Mm-hmm. And I've been waiting and waiting because Baptisia is one of those things you can't move. Right. It's got a super deep taproot. So when you plant it, you got to know that that's where it's going to stay. And so I've just been waiting and waiting to have my chance to plant some Baptisia. Yeah, I planted some last year, and it got a little bullied by Alistair. Okay. So I'm hoping... This That's one her I'm, dog. Yeah, my dog. Yeah. <laughs> this is one I'm anxiously awaiting to see if it comes back. If it comes back. back up. We'll see. I mean, it, yeah. It, it is one of those ones that it's, it's worth your patience. Mm-hmm. So it can be a little slower to establish, so... It is one that I'd worry a little bit if if it got bullied, but right. But then once it's there, it's there. It's not going anywhere. It's drought. I mean, that taproot makes mm-hmm. it so drought tolerant. It's and it's it's a nice one because it can go from full sun to part shade. And oh, my other favorite part is the seeds. Yes, oh. it makes these rattles. Mm-hmm. And they're just so cool to look at. We here in the office we have some in a vase just because yes. it's like why wouldn't you? I have a picture of of Silas with some in his little overall pocket, Aww. so I'll try to find that picture. <laughs> That's so cute. All right. Well, I think we made it through lingo. We talked about our plants. 
All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening. Don't forget to rate and review us uh, wherever you listen to this podcast. Send us questions. Email us. Send us voicemail questions. We would love to share those with folks. Um, And you can find all that information on our website, plantnebraska.org. Bloombox and Bloombox Growing Deeper are programs of the Nebraska Statewide Arboretum. Thank you.